This is an ABC podcast. It's the first time listening to that theme, actually, that the heaviness of the drums has sort of occurred to me. So I'm normally focused on the guitar bit, but the if you go back and listen to it, see if you can hear what I just heard. Or maybe it's just some idiosyncratic response I had at that moment in time. Hello, by the way, this is The Minefield. Uh, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, and it's ethical dilemmas, I guess, that is the focus of what we're going to talk about today, and whether or not they're stupid, particularly when they're hypothetical. That seems to be my best immediate summary or my most pithy summary of what is about to come. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host and he's very, very fired up about this topic because it's one of the first things I reckon he ever said to me. His view on this, it just po- it keeps popping up with you, Scott. You can't let this one go, is can you? Is that right? Wow. So yeah. we're, we're just revealing publicly my private obsessions. Is that right? Well, that's the purpose of the show, really. I, well, I always <laughs> thought it was the purpose of the show, but I didn't want yeah. it to be public knowledge. Yeah, well, there you go. Your well, ideas have finally rubbed off. Well, uh, this is, I mean, if we were being really highfalutin about this, we would call this yep. particular episode the meta minefield because we're trying to take <laughs> a step back, aren't we? And yeah. sort of reflect on what is it exactly that we're doing when we do moral philosophy. But more in keeping with the tone of the show, I think it's probably better to call this the Seinfeld episode, isn't it? <laughs> this, this is. Well, it's about nothing. Yeah, well, well, it's either about nothing, that's a very real risk that we're running, or it's the yes. show about the show. So, so yeah. look, let me just, let me bear my soul here. One of the dominant tones, one of the primary methods in moral philosophy ever since the 1930s has been a preoccupation, it seems to me, with hypothetical test cases, hypothetical scenarios. Now, even if you know nothing about moral philosophy, you've probably heard one of these. So, there's the infamous trolley problem. There's a trolley hurtling down the street. You're standing there at a switch. For some unknown reason, five people are bound to the tracks on one side of the line, and a single person is bound to the track on the other side of the line. Which way do you flip the switch? Some life is going to be lost. How do you calculate consequences? Or there might be the I mean, to my mind, probably the most corrosive in purely political terms, the most corrosive hypothetical scenario ever devised, namely the ticking bomb problem. Uh, You've got a terrorist in a locked room, a bomb's going to go off. Do you torture said terrorist in order to extract the information? I should say that one hypothetical case has probably done more than anything else to cause moral philosophers to lose their spine in the face of the absolute proscription that ought to be a simple part, I think, of the profession, the credo, the vocation of moral philosophy, which is the inadmissibility of torture to core. Instead, this has been one of those scenarios, one of these hypothetical test cases that has provided, if you like, alibis, varying degrees of justification for, I think, the unjustifiable. Uh, And then you've got the other test cases. Suppose a neighbor is standing on your foot. Suppose you have a friend who is cheating on his spouse. And then it usually ends with, would it be permissible for me to dot, 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 dot. And these are kind of cases that you're supposed to insert yourself into. You're supposed to read your immediate intuitive response to the case. 
And then if you have a good teacher or a good tutor, then you're supposed to slowly but surely pick apart why that intuition is right, why it was Why did wrong. you end up standing on the neighbor's foot? What well, you see, this is, this is part of the problem for me, Willie. And here you're really kind of stoking my fires. This is part <laughs> of the problem. The, the, the scenarios are dreamed up by people who are fundamentally devoid of imagination. It doesn't matter that the scenarios are either unrealistic or absurd. It doesn't even matter that any degree of human concern, that any kind of element of humanity is stripped out of it. The cases themselves are stripped back to the barest possible bones of very, very, you know, basic, almost negligible human interaction. And we're supposed to derive certain moral lessons from it. I still want to hear more about the foot stomping background, but what's the problem with that? If what you're trying to do is distill a principle in the abstract... So, for example, the trolley problem yep. raises all sorts of questions, personalism versus utilitarianism, mm-hmm. for example. And is it about numbers of people killed? Is it about the kind of people that are killed? Is it about acts of commission versus omission? That is, by getting involved, does that change the moral character yep. of your action? Uh, so, you become responsible for killing that person because you've decided to flick the switch, or if you just don't get involved, do you somehow escape moral culpability? In other words, there's a rich vein of questions there that get opened by what I think is actually quite a well-constructed scenario, not because it's realistic, but precisely because it's not realistic, because it allows you then to distill the kinds of principles in moral philosophy you might want to debate. Which I, I should also point out, by the way, that that was the fundamental theme in the last episode ever of Seinfeld, which is the moral bystander problem. Uh, you remember yes. that they were actually convicted. It's actually a great moment right. of moral philosophy. But anyway, they were, we're, leaving that, we're leaving that to in the a, side. In an otherwise terrible episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, it, it's true. Look, my, my, my sense is this. One of the things that the use of test cases, I think, resonates with is the notion that moral philosophy, if I can quote Stanley Cavell here, moral philosophy never goes first. It's always in a very real way responsive to something else. And so even if we use the other traditional moral philosophy, which tends to be more exegetical, more interpretive, where you're reading the works of others within that common tradition, you're discovering how virtue might work within the work of Immanuel Kant or the way that recognition might operate in the philosophy of Hegel. Uh, There, something else comes first, a more fundamental text. There's no wonder, I think, that a great deal of that broader moral philosophical tradition actually comes out of various religious traditions. There's a something kind of interpretive. There's something uh, exegetical about one's use of prior texts. So, moral philosophy never comes first. It's always responding to something that is already there. I think that's part of the inherent humility that's involved in moral philosophy. My problem with this over-reliance, and I really do need to stress this over-reliance, and I don't think that over-reliance should be underestimated. I mean, this use of test cases is ubiquitous in analytical moral philosophy. This becomes the form, the primary theater, the environment within which moral concepts are explored. I think one of the real problems is not only that these scenarios bear no resemblance to the kind of moments in life that one might actually encounter, not only is it a skeletal narrative, in other words, kind of reduced back to its barest, barest possible terms, such that there's no opportunity really to interrogate, to try to delve more deeply into the specificness, the particularities that the particular situation might represent. But here's my big issue, Willade. It reduces moral philosophy to dealing with certain dilemmas. It makes moral philosophy something that's almost calculative rather than 
formative. In other words, moral philosophy becomes a matter of riddles. There are these dilemmas that we have to solve. Can we find a way of solving these particular dilemmas working from the ground up rather than working from various normative or even transcendental principles down? It also means that philosophy is being stripped out of something that it really used to be in the sort of pre-Cartesian philosophical universe, which is something like a way of life, a practice of various virtues and habits, a vision on the world, a way of nurturing human and political community that really doesn't accord very well to this kind of calculative dilemma-based approach. So, it, it, it ends up, I think, on every possible front, removing moral philosophy from the practices of everyday life. And it turns it instead to a kind of calculative, almost scientific way of dealing with very abstract and I think fundamentally deceptive moral, not, not even moral dilemma, quasi-moral dilemma. I think his second point is stronger one. I think that there's a lot of truth to that, this idea that um, by turning things into scenarios, we overlook the formative dimensions or we overlook really the whole enterprise of moral formation as a prior thing, as something that we're imbibed in. We overlook the marinade, I guess, and are focused only on the meal at the end of it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. but That's the new name I, for the show, by the way, the moral marinade. The moral marinade. <laughs> okay. You take that to publicity and you see if they can spark it. Um, so, I think that point is very strong. I, I don't think I am with you on the idea that these scenarios are so divorced from reality that they become of no use. So, as you were talking, the thing that that I kept thinking about was, surely it's very easy to see how something like the trolley problem becomes really applicable to a scenario like our current debates about offshore processing of asylum seekers. Because, as we've discussed on this program several times, our current policy on that and our approach to that over years has been of an avowedly utilitarian character, which is remarkable because it's at odds with the way we approach political and, I suppose, moral questions within politics in every other sphere of life. But when it comes to this, we become utilitarian, which I think is interesting. But you can grasp immediately what the trolley problem is putting in front of you, and you can then apply those principles to a real-life political controversy here that is dividing the nation, but that people don't actually tend to think about through the prism of philosophical principles that you could elucidate through a scenario like that. So, if what you are arguing is that these sort of scenarios, these hypothetical scenarios are somehow malevolent, I can't be with you on that. If what you're arguing, however, is that by forming the sum total of our moral reckoning, they are deficient, then I can be completely with you on that. And I don't know if you're occupying some middle ground that you can invite me to, or I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that these things have their place and they have their place as a sharpening tool, surely, and an elucidation tool, perhaps even as a way of challenging or somehow amending some of the formative aspects of moral formation, which I agree mm. are being horrifically overlooked. But that really is something that pervades every strata of society, I would, have, well, I, I would argue. Let me just then take you one step further, because I think... Insofar as, say, the political vocation is non-divorceable from certain utilitarian considerations. I mean, we, yeah. we would both agree. Well, sort of, yeah. Well, well you, you, you cannot be a politician and not 
be deeply engaged with a utilitarian calculus? Absolutely, you can. That's the point of being a liberal politician, for example. Wow. I'm going to have to think about that. Um, I feel like we've had this. I'm surprised we're, we're, we're on the verge of having it again. Uh, and I figured we were in agreement on this. Well, the thing that's remarkable about the asylum seeker situation is we apply utilitarian moral logic to it that we apply nowhere else. We don't go uh, find smokers and put them in prison and lash them as some kind of disincentive to other people smoking. We accept that people have a freedom to cast themselves into self-destructive behaviour. But when it comes to boat people, we don't. Yes, but you see, here's... That, that's what's interesting about it. So, so it's the absence of utilitarianism in a lot of our politics that I think throws the asylum seeker example into stark relief. So if you want me to say that politics is, it, you necessarily embrace a kind of utilitarian ethic the minute you enter into politics, I, I, I'm going to find that difficult, unless you can qualify that in some way, and we, maybe we don't have time or we're going down a rabbit hole here. But uh, yeah, I, I find that hard to agree with. What I would say is that is that some flirtation with utilitarianism within the political vocation, because your moral convictions are not fundamentally your own, they are right. bound by other things. I think that's inescapable. What I would say, though, is that if we're applying the trolley problem to our treatment of asylum seekers, I think that becomes a form of application that is relevant to a particular sphere of life, namely political judgment. But that would be a form of moral reckoning that would be entirely inapplicable to a voting or deliberative public who don't have the same decision-making responsibility, but for, right. for whom the moral vision that they are allowed to cultivate through media, through their own formation, the way that they are able to see human beings as human beings and therefore being uh, owed something that is fundamentally uh, similar to the smokers, for instance, in the yeah. analogy that you give, that's where I think the trolley problem brings us nowhere at all. This becomes uh, an issue of moral vision rather than of, say, of utilitarian calculus. This is where I think this kind of hypothetical scenario, it might be appropriate for a particular profession. It might even be professionalizable in a particular way. But what it isn't is a kind of a cultivation of life that for in the pre-Cartesian universe in particular was very much part of moral philosophy as such. So everything has its place. We agree. Show's over. We have a guest, though, so we should do something with him. Uh, this is The Minefield. You can listen to us on RN. You might be doing that right now. If so, thank you for doing it. But you can also catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app. And it is a podcast as well, which comes with extra content. So subscribe to us as a podcast wherever it is you do such things, and you'll hear that extra content. Scott. Uh, our guest is Justin Oakley. Justin is the Associate Professor in the School of Philosophical, Historical and International Studies at Monash University. He's the Deputy Director of the Monash Bioethics Centre, a field where hypothetical test cases, bioethics that is, is particularly perfidious uh, and common. <laughs> hi, hi, Justin. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, hi, Scott. Hi, Waleed. Thanks for having me on the show. So, so look, help, help me out here. Uh, give us a bit, maybe not necessarily of the history, but how is it exactly that test cases, these hypothetical scenarios, have come to dominate so much of moral philosophical discourse as opposed to what would ordinarily pass for moral philosophy, even as late as the 19th century? 
Yes, well, as you say, uh, there've often been appeals to hypothetical cases going way back to Kant and um, Kant's example of whether or not you ought to tell a lie, you know, to protect someone who's being pursued by mm. a murderer. And, you know, he thinks even in that case, you shouldn't tell a lie. And then you think of William Godwin, an early utilitarian, asking about whether or not if there was, say, the archbishop and a chambermaid in a burning building, which one would you save? And, you know, he thinks you ought to save the archbishop because it would do more good, you know, socially. So certainly well, hypothetical well, well, cases. In yeah. fact, though, Godwin's particular point is that it's not just any archbishop who's sort of of a higher socioeconomic or higher social state. It's Archbishop Fenelon, who, right. who was about to write something that would influence thousands and thousands of people. So it's... It's more, it's academic intellectual value rather than some simply social status. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but, but I certainly think you're right that um, probably in my judgment, more since the 1950s or 60s with the rise of applied ethics, which really ushered in the rise of utilitarianism or the sort of comeback of utilitarianism in some ways, because, you know, bioethics and applied ethics is very dominated by utilitarianism and consequentialism. And so, you know, a lot of utilitarians are very fond of things like the trolley problem and not just thought experiments, but some quite outlandish kinds of thought experiments as well that we're starting to see. Um, so, you know, I think we see it on both sides of moral philosophy. You see it amongst utilitarians. You also see it amongst deontologists as well, trying to figure out or make fine-grained distinctions between the kinds of rights that we have or don't have in a particular situation. Um, one, I guess, famous deontologist is Francis Cam. And uh, I remember uh, in the 90s, we had a group of utilitarians from Scandinavia come to visit the centre and come to spend some time with Peter Singer. Uh, and it was around the time that Francis Cam was just starting to publish. And uh, she had about, at that stage, about 40 variations of the trolley problem <laughs> and sort of looking through them to try to distill, as we were saying before, uh, exactly what rights are at stake there and what your duties might be. And I remember one of these Scandinavian utilitarians said, um, oh, have you read any Francis Cam? And I said, yeah, I've been reading it. And he said, oh, um, she has incredibly specific intuitions. Uh, <laughs> it was just, and, uh, I kind of agreed. It's... Um, I mean, she has some interesting things to say about why she uses these um, thought experiments. So she says, you know, some moral philosophy is a little bit like Goldilocks. If you think of sort of Goldilocks as an application of an Aristotelian approach where you try and find the golden mean, not too hot, not too cool, <laughs> but just right. And she said that her approach is a little bit more like the princess and the pea, uh, where there's these layers on top of some kind of small difference that other people might not perceive, but uh, she's trying to bring out through sort of taking away the layers uh, with lots of variations of the trolley problem. So what, what's the appropriate role then of hypothetical scenarios in moral philosophy that doesn't compromise the problem Scott's identified of an absence of moral form, a prior moral formation? Yeah, I do think that they have a place and often I think what we can learn from them is the same sort of thing that scientists can learn when they you know, create artificial environments to try to control, as scientists say, the variables. And I mean, you can think of morally relevant features as kinds of variables in a sense. So I think it's quite useful to try to distill what the principle might be if there is one that might be at work in justifying a particular decision or guiding people. But I also think that... Um, 
you know, even though they have a place, it's important not to get carried away with them and to um, understand that they are very stripped bare and that the intuitions that we have in responding to even the basic form of the trolley problem might not be transferable to everyday life because there's a lot of other details, messy details in everyday life that we need to take account of. Mm. Well, let, let's go back to what it is exactly that through these test cases we are trying to discover because there's also a particular vision of what moral philosophy is that's at stake here. So, if you take your scientific analogy, Justin, and there is an observation that is being made because of a particular phenomena that occurs in nature or in a particular setting, then you move that observation through various variables in order to test a particular hypothesis that might be beneath it. In test cases, you have a test case and there's a particular unformed, if you like, moral intuition that's being evoked. Then through variations or through counterexamples, you're running that same intuition through the gamut, if you like, of various controlled situations. What is it exactly that's trying to be discovered here? Is it the legitimacy, the transferability, the accuracy, the, uh, the consistency of that intuition? What, what's, being, what's being sought? Well, I guess in a lot of ways, they tend to be testing absolutist claims mm, uh, mm. about, you know, rights or duties not to kill innocent people and, you know, rights of self-defence and how far that right of self-defence goes and, you know, what damage might be justifiably inflicted on others um, in defending ourselves. And, you know, a classic scenario that's older, I think, than the trolley problem is, you know, looking at two bombers to try to illustrate the doctrine of double effect. When we're thinking about a strategic bomber and a terrorist bomber, you know, in both cases, let's say if they're fighting a just war, you know, suppose there can be such a thing as a just mm. war and they're mm. fighting a war of self-defence, let's say, and there's a particularly crucial ammunitions factory that needs to be destroyed for the war effort. But unfortunately, there's 100 innocent civilians who live right next to it and there's no way of taking out the factory without killing the civilians. And, you know, and as you know from this comparison, a terrorist bomber would proceed to bomb the factory, but his intention is to kill innocent civilians in order to terrorise the enemy into surrendering. Whereas a strategic bomber is someone who would, of course, bomb the factory, but the deaths of the innocent civilians would be a foreseen side effect of that. So, so it's really trying to figure out in that case, well, say if there were only 50 innocent civilians, you know, would that still be justifiable? Say if there were like 200 innocent civilians. So it's really, I suppose, to answer your question, Scott, trying to figure out the limits of what we often perhaps rather euphemistically refer to as collateral damage when we're kind of pursuing a just goal. So what if the use of the scenario, Scott, invited a kind of critique of the scenario itself? So, for example, I use in my teaching within, so I teach uh, some subjects to do with terrorism studies at Monash University. And within that, I use the ticking time bomb scenario if I'm doing a discussion of torture, for example. But the point of using it is to demonstrate all the ways in which that scenario makes assumptions mm. that are simply not supportable assumptions. And the way in which the scenario itself contradicts the premises on which it's often used to justify torture. So, for example, um, you have to imagine a scenario where a bomb is imminent. And so that's the reason that you would be relying on torture. But of course, you fail to factor in that you're dealing with somebody who we've assumed is a terrorist who could just misdirect you for a very short period of time, relieve themselves of any torture and thereby buy themselves enough time until the bomb goes off anyway. So this sort of discussion where the whole construction of the scenario is itself a kind of admission of defeat mm. and leads you 
down the pathway where you recognise that the conditions you have to create in order to justify torture are simply either non-existent or are so easily gotten around that they become illusory. Mm. In that sort of scenario, surely using the scenario, I can't believe I've doubled up on It's a meta scenario. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> this meta minefield. In that sort of situation, the scenario is incredibly powerful, isn't it? And it becomes a really important part, if not of moral philosophy, then at least of political pragmatism. And it ushers in a completely different discussion or a different way of attacking the problem than you could possibly do without it. Mm. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, I do think that um, in those kinds of scenarios, it's important for students, you know, in a teaching kind of context and also for people thinking about the issues to consider some kind of variations of the scenario and what's sort of driving their views and driving their intuitions. And, um, you know, we do that a lot in teaching philosophy. And, you know, often students will question, you know, the setup of the trolley problem and they say, oh, well, let's just change the example a bit or, you know, I don't believe in the example. And often, I guess, we tend as tutors to get a bit impatient with that and say, well, just take the example as we've <laughs> outlined it. And uh, what do you think about that? So, yeah, I mean, I do think that they have their place. You know, I agree with what you said earlier on, Scott, about the way that they've really come to dominate moral philosophy. And, it's interesting to speculate on why that might be the case. Um, part of it is uh, a sort of real attempt to try to gain, if you like, professional respectability uh, amongst you know, other philosophers because ethics compared to areas like metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of science, at least in some philosophy departments, tends to be a little bit neglected. And I think this is kind of a tool or a bit of a toolkit that moral philosophers can use to show that they have something to offer as well that's kind of got that hard, scientific, rigorous edge mm. to it. Yeah, it appeals to our desire for calculation, mm. for precision, for a kind of economic or scientific approach to things. Um, and it's accessible is the other thing, which for students, I imagine, is a very important entry point. Um, more on the podcast to come. Because Justin's going to hang... You will hang around, Justin. Yeah, absolutely. You were, you were told that was part yeah. of the brief. Great. Justin Oakley, our guest today, Associate Professor in the School of Philosophical, Historical and International Studies at uh, Monash University. Also the Deputy Director of the Monash Bioethics Centre. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is at an end on the radio machine, the podcast extra to come now. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. So I want to come back to this issue of professional respectability, because I think that that has actually been a very, very big part of this entire drive, um, that it is trying to give the task of moral philosophy, the vocation of moral philosophy, not just a certain professional standing, uh, but also something like a, a way of progressing scientifically. Um, let me go to one particular case that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately. Um, it's striking to me that if we just go back to this instance of, of torture, um, even though, even with the ticking time bomb, what this seems to lead you to is either uh, other nefarious motives that may not be on display with the case itself, or the problem of degrees, uh, if one allows this much torture, if one allows this many victims, then it just becomes a kind of haggling over what degrees we will allow. What's striking to me and, and I'm quite interested in, in what you both think about this. What's striking to me is that in both cases, there's a form of reasoning here that is trying to be engaged in from the ground up. You take particular scenarios, and there's a form of not even normativity, uh, but there's a form of calculation that emerges from the difference or from the variations that are played through the cases themselves. Why is it then that moral philosophers as a profession have been so slow to bring any 
one could even call them transcendental calculations, transcendental considerations. Anything that belongs to the more properly normative sphere concerning, say, the dignity, the, Im- the dignity of human life, the impermissibility of torture as such. Why has this been such a staple in, for instance, international law and human rights considerations, whereas in the very human profession, the very consideration of what is most peculiarly, specifically human, that these kinds of considerations surrounding what is owed human life as such tend to be so far out of what ought to be brought into the calculation? Yeah, I think you're right. Um you know, moral absolutism is not a very popular approach in moral philosophy or amongst moral philosophers. And I think partly that's because it is very difficult to apply. I think it's hard to defend it in the face of some fairly strong counterexamples. But I think also what you're getting at there, Scott, is the importance of you know talking about what are sometimes called sort of thick concepts or thick moral evaluations as distinct from thin ones. So I think of evaluating an action as courageous or admirable um, or cowardly or honest compared to just saying, well, that was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and of course, I mean, that's been the rise of Aristotelianism and virtue ethics is to really sort of give us a richer moral vocabulary for evaluating acts um, and people for that matter. But with concepts like dignity, I think, certainly in bioethics anyway, it's a concept that got appealed to in a very hand-waving kind of way yes, that's true. Uh, in the early days of bioethics. And I think it's only in the last probably five years that moral philosophers, uh, at least the secular moral philosophers, are taking it far more seriously and sort of giving more analytical approaches to it rather than thinking that, well, you know, unless you're religious, it's a concept that really doesn't have much application. So happy with that, Scott? Well, I, I, I mean, define happy. Um, <laughs> what about, let me just take though another variation on on this. Uh, I mean, it it just strikes me, and again, this is something that's been very much front of mind, and you've brought in virtue ethics, and I'm very, very glad you have. Um, uh, there's been a great deal of work, especially surrounding the moral sentiments, uh, about what forms of emotion, what forms of communicative attitudes, for instance, uh, are rightly and wrongly displayed in various situations. And one of the things that I think a lot of moral philosophers over the last two decades have done is have moved beyond certain proscriptions against certain emotions like anger, uh, like even contempt, uh, things that are, say, deficient moral emotions, and then trying to find those scenarios, those those test cases within which it might be apt, it might be appropriate to display a form of contempt, to to lash out with a degree of anger. That, by the way, Waleed, is the, my neighbor is standing on my foot. Would it be permissible uh, for me to dot, dot, dot? I mean, that's a real scenario yes. that I keep coming but across. But I wanted to know how this ended yeah, up I happening. I know. Way too much so sort done. of invasion of, of, of space. But I think okay. what's, what, what, what's, what's interesting is that in, in itemizing the various situations in which this particular emotion might be appropriate or might be legitimately displayed, what I think is missing, and, you know, I'm not just pulling this out of the hat, this is very much part of moral philosophy, what's missing is that broader reflection of what happens when certain emotions like anger, like contempt, are allowed to flow through human community. So, instead of just these itemized instances of, would it be permissible permissible here? What about here? What about here? Instead, what you have in Kant, what you have in Aristotle is, what happens when anger becomes habituated? Or what happens when anger becomes a part of the commerce, part of the consort uh, that defines a political community? And they both end up discovering, I think rightly, that these are fundamental 
fundamentally corrosive to human relationship. And that, that, that I guess, uh, um, Justin, is what's really, what really irks me more than anything else about the way in which these cases are used. It almost forecloses the ability to stand back and attend to what is moral philosophy's proper concern, which is the, uh, not just the thickness, but also the, uh, the proper beneficial forms within which human life in community ought properly to take. Can I just jump in? Because one thing it also does, Scott, which is a point I know you've made previously, is it makes certain arguments either inadmissible yeah. or just incomprehensible in our public debate. So an example that I could think of, it's one of the reasons, for, uh, for example, that an anti-euthanasia argument is just about impossible to prosecute in our society now because it relies on these more abstract notions of what does it mean when you reconceptualize death in this way mm. or what does it mean when you place death in the hands of an individual's choice or you subordinate an individual's choice or so on. And these are conversations that they are actually thick moral concerns, but they're not moral concerns that mean anything to anybody mm. uh, anymore. Well, to obviously to people who might have a very, you know, a religious conviction or some other reason for latching onto it, but they're becoming increasingly rare uh, and support for euthanasia is increasingly popular, um, partly because that flows very much, it flows frictionlessly along the, the sort of the, the liberal veins that we have now running through the moral reckoning of our society. So I think that's a fascinating, that concept is fascinating about how we foreclose modes of thinking, we foreclose modes of moral reasoning, we foreclose modes of reckoning and then that shrinks a whole series of debates so that we end up with debates that, to the extent they exist at all, tend to exist in their most anemic forms rather than in forms that are actually flourishing or in any way thick, mm. to use the word that seems to be popular <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Justin, I just wanted to interpose that. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, I suppose if we think about the debates we've had in Victoria here about voluntary assisted dying and, you know, the legalisation of that practice, often people, what's led people to change their minds about that has been some personal experience. Um, the you know, family member. Mm. Yeah, and it's been yeah. not so much, I suppose, listening to, you know, debates about trolley problems or the like, but it is more what they have experienced with a parent. Um, but it's more more popular, so support for something. I don't want to do a show on euthanasia now, but um, but support for euthanasia is more popular or higher than can be understood through personal experience. There is something instinctive where people hear a scenario, and and media is very good at providing scenarios. So you will hear a story, and it'll be a harrowing story of some mm -hmm. terrible situation, mm -hmm. um, and you can't at the end of that story say anything but mm -hmm. surely they should have the right to end the, their life in this situation. And that's an utterly sincere and even commendable position to take in response to, to the scenario, in response to the story. What Scott's talking about, I think, is this idea of, yes, but there is another conversation to be had that exists beyond scenarios and stories that acknowledges there will always be scenarios where the result is unsatisfactory, but there are other considerations, there are other things lost in the process that we need to be attentive to, but we no longer have the philosophical or vocabulary in public, at least, to be able even to think about it in that way, much less come to a conclusion that, that rests firmly upon it. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I mean, if you think of the sort of question that Aristotle begins with, you know, how are we to live? And that's a huge <laughs> question. And it's not just about what we ought to do, but it's also about you know, how we ought to be as individuals, what sort of characters we ought to have, what sort of emotions we ought to feel. Um, that's what I did my PhD on, actually, was <laughs> on the moral significance of emotions in our lives. So, um, you know, I think sometimes you can get philosophers, even like analytical philosophers, talking past each other a little bit with some of them having a narrower view and thinking that's not that might be part of ethics, looking at those questions, part of living an ethical life, but living a moral life is something narrower. So you do sometimes get people using terminology a little bit differently here talking about morality or moral philosophy in a narrow sense compared to talking about ethics and being an ethicist, if you like. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I don't want to be heard to be advocating, and again, I'm really curious to hear what you two think about this. I'm not saying that moral philosophy needs to be a glorified form of self-help. In other words, I'm not trying to substitute here, you know, A.J. Ayer for Alain de Botton. I'm not saying that, that, you know, moral philosophy is sort of how to get your best self out of the rubble of everyday life. But at the same time, I'm not trying to say that moral philosophy needs to be overly abstract. It really does need to find itself in concrete situations. It does need to be responsive, as I was trying to say at the very beginning. Moral philosophy always comes second. But what do you two think about the role, say, of fiction, uh, in other words, or even a film in the in the production of robust, profoundly human, even conflictual, not at all sterile or clean scenarios that really do test the limits uh, of the way in which we understand the moral life. And one of the things that comes to mind immediately, if you think about, say, Toni Morrison's novel Beloved against the background of the presumption, the fundamental presumption of natal alienation, namely that slave women don't have the same attachment to their children that white women do, therefore removing slave children from their mothers or, or, or black children from their slave mothers isn't the same moral harm as removing a, a child from a free woman would. Uh, it, against that background, the decision that horrible morally reprehensible, but also incredibly justifiable decision on the part of the mother of the story to kill her own child rather than allow that child to be taken back into, into the nightmare of slavery. You can't really extrapolate a moral or a normative case from that, but that ends up being a scenario that I think is morally compelling, that demands some kind of reckoning, does it not? Yeah, absolutely it does. Uh, I think there's no substitute for the power of novels and films to be able to dramatise issues and particularly, I suppose, when we're thinking about documentaries as well, you know, real issues that mm, um, certainly, you know, students um, respond to in my experience. And I think of novels like Lord Jim, you know, the Conrad yeah. novel and thinking about understanding what true courage is. And in you know, one way I use that um, in a subject I teach called The Moral Psychology of Evil is to look at the failing uh, where he judged himself as a coward um, being the first mate of a ship that was sinking and he jumped ship too soon and you know according to the ethic of the sea you're supposed to be the last one off or the second last one off as the first mate and yet he had shown himself to uh, have done things earlier in the novel that were courageous, but that one um, incident uh, where the ship actually ends up not sinking, but that one incident in his mind sort of defines himself and proves once and for all that he's a coward. And um, 
I think that's a great novel for demonstrating how we often do put too much weight on these so-called moral test scenarios and thinking about that as a more general question, which I think we're all inclined to say things like when the chips are down, people's true colours come out, which I think is a mistake to, to say that. And so, you know, dramatising that through a novel like Lord Jim um, is very effective in my experience. Except, Scott, isn't that really just a more embellished scenario? What do you mean? Well, when you, when you think about um, whether we feel more... Or, or novels, you're dealing with a particular story, right? You're dealing with a particular scenario. And it may well be that in this case, because you know so much more about the character and other things that have occurred, you might understand the scenario in a different way. But it comes down to the use of scenarios, doesn't it? Characters are placed in scenarios and then we make our judgments of those characters or they make judgments of themselves based on their response to those scenarios. So I'm just interested in your invocation of it. What do you want from it or what do you think it offers that other scenario-based forms of reasoning don't? Yeah, well, see, I, I think there are two things. That's a great question, by the way. There, there, there are two things here that I, that I think are very important. One is, re recall that Iris Murdoch wanted terms like good and bad banned completely from moral philosophical discourse. She just didn't think that language did. She thought they were bad. <laughs> well, well, she didn't think that the language did anything. It actually didn't communicate right. anything. So she was strongly in favor of what she called second order descriptive terms. Things like courageous, fastidious, picky, brave, or, you know, th things that in the description, and, and, you know, Murdoch herself very famously used particular scenarios, but she gave them a kind of novelistic depth that allowed you to interrogate the human circumstances in a way that the bare bones, skeletal, fairly sterile approach, I think, to hypothetical scenarios simply doesn't allow you to do. There's a, there's a human dimension to it that gives them something to engage with. But there's something else here, which I think is really interesting. There is a kind of ethical violence that's involved in the production of these scenarios themselves. The philosopher exerts almost a kind of godlike control over the terms over what can be considered and what can't be considered within those scenarios, uh, which means that there are no alternative demands that are placed on either the hypothesizer, the person who's putting forward the scenarios, or the listeners. Uh, there's nothing peculiarly human. There aren't obligations that are placed on the listener to engage with them in a way that might be credible or defensible. And this is something that Toni Morrison herself pointed out quite brilliantly. She says, novels place moral obligations on the writer and readers alike. They demand credibility. Is this something that is believable? Is this something, is the, the character's response in this situation something that is in any way humanly, not just justifiable, but believable? Is it credible? And so I think that when you have these novelistic or these more higher order fictional or even cinematic situations, there is a form of mutual obligation that's invoked that draws the person who's trying to engage with the deeper philosophical concepts or stakes uh, um, in a way that, that uh, is both more credible, uh, but also um, uh, draws out, I think, responses uh, that are simply more human. Yeah, I agree with you, Scott. And I certainly notice in teaching um, that it's a different group of students who speak up when you switch from talking about real examples to the hypothetical scenarios like trolley problems. And um, it's kind of interesting that it's not often that you get students who are equally comfortable dealing with both kinds of examples. And um, 
And just going back to the conversation we're having about thick concepts and thin concepts, I think one of the worries that people generally have about using the thicker concepts, you know, so whether it's Oris Murdoch or Elizabeth Anscombe, mm. um, it's sometimes people worry that we're just not going to agree on it and it's to introduce as an element of subjectivity into it, you know, what counts as courageous. It's like asking, oh, is that food delicious or was that joke funny? And people, I think one worry is that people will kind of project their views of what a courageous action is onto the world, whereas with terms that are more stripped back, like right and wrong and good and bad, um, I think the hope is that we might be able to achieve more sort of intersubjective agreement about you know, how they apply and what they mean. Seems but, a vain hope to me. But it also hollows I mean, out, I think, <laughs> the, the, the criteria of moral judgment. Moral judgment becomes then a matter of, uh, of judging something as being permissible or impermissible, as right or wrong in a particular situation. Whereas, again, that itself is a kind of emaciated notion of moral judgment. If you think about the way that someone like Stanley Cavell understands it, uh, that moral judgment becomes a way not of proscribing or of exiling someone who has done the wrong thing, but rather becomes various ways of tracing the paths back into robust human community. So, I, I think there, there are ways here of understanding what's going on when we do moral philosophy that aren't just about evaluating the good and the bad in a particular situation, but those forms of life that are credible, that are defensible, that uh, lead to human life that is both flourishing and, and genuinely human versus those where the notions of moral behavior have grown very, very thin. So, Scott, Sinead's been writing on the screen that we're over time for right. ages and you chose to go on and that was wrong. Well, we this can is, all agree. This is my topic. It's just like my party and I'll go on if I want to. I think. It was wrong of you to do it. <laughs> Justin, thank you very much for helping us because Lord knows we needed it. Thanks very much, Walid and Scott. Great talking with you. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.